we start today's episode with the healing power of vegetables. We all know that a diet rich in fresh produce is packed with vitamins, minerals and beneficial trace elements. Fresh vegetables form the basis of something called Ayurveda. Dr. Ron Mangani practices Ayurveda in Sri Lanka. So I'll let her explain a little bit about the medicinal significance of the fresh produce we can eat. Ayu means life, Veda means science. Ayurveda means the science of life. That is come from 5000 years before. That is origin by India, but we have also similar medicines. We are only using natural things like vegetables and uh, some plants like that. Everything basically based on our three bioenergies and also the time of the having morning time, lunch time or dinner time. Also time of the age, childhood, middle age and old ages like that. Normally we are doing consultation. In the consultation, I should check eight aspects in the body. For healthy living, we can have a red rice and some green vegetables like that things. Also, we have to avoid raw salads for the dinner time and time to time warm water drinking like that things for healthy living, well-being. So a diet rich in fresh vegetables really can improve your health. But not all vegetables are good for everyone. For example, fresh tomatoes are packed with vitamin C and minerals. But when cooked, the vitamins are destroyed. Pumpkin is great to aid metabolism, but is not ideal for diabetics, as it contains a substantial amount of sugar. And spinach is very healthy, but not great if you have a problem with your upper respiratory tract. Welcome to the Science Behind Your Salad, brought to you by BASF. I'm your host, Jane Craigie. Each episode, we go in search of the best ingredients and we tell the stories of those striving to provide the freshest, tastiest produce for our dining tables and for our stomachs. And today we're exploring a massive subject, vegetables. Rather than focusing on individual types of vegetables, we'll be looking at how crops are grown and shipped around the globe And we'll be considering seasonality. Should we be buying locally grown seasonal vegetables or should we embrace the massive variety available to us because we live in a connected world? So connected, in fact, that the global fresh vegetables market was valued at $632 billion in 2021. Add to the mix frozen veg too and the revenue in the vegetable sector amounts to, get this, point. 98 trillion US dollars for 2023. But first of all, how did we become so accustomed to buying virtually what we like, when we like, and conditioned to expect supermarket shelves to be filled with varieties from all over the world? Bradley Magnus came over to the UK a few decades ago from South Africa. He's a highly experienced expert in the agri-tech industry, and he remembers the shift towards more exotic vegetables appearing in our stores. I think the retailers take a lot of credit for that growth and expansion. But I think by providing that level of convenience and taking over the marketplace in the way that they've done, it's also been the undoing of the local market and undoing of the UK consumer 
being comfortable with the fact that actually there, there are no product A, B, C, you know, we're not going to get avocados. We don't expect them every every week or every month or that's that's when we're going to buy them, that's when we're not. So I think the UK retailers, you know, we always talk about them being market leading across the globe. And I genuinely think they did that. You know, you've got to give them credit where, where credit's due. I, I think the natural process has, has occurred. You know, we've we've gone global, then these things have got bigger and bigger, and they have a much larger impact on our eating habits and our on, and our expectation in terms of how much we're going to pay for food. And then the and then what you see after that is is it stops being about quality as much. And and that's not saying the retailers aren't focused on it. They 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 call that part of their core requirement. And you know, in my, in my past, I was, I was fortunate enough to spend some time working for, you know, global fresh producer. And, and it was always highlighted, the UK has got the highest expectation on quality and the lowest expectation on delivery cost. And, and somewhere within that, those two things are going to bump into each other and, and you will either have to move the costs up or accept the fact that you're going to move your availability down. And I think we've hit that that piece it's it's where the retailers are starting to to run into those those challenges i think having lost those marketplaces i think we've lost a lot of tangible touch points with our with our food in that sense and that local knowledge and and local freshness and i think that's that's been forfeited um i think one of the other aspects we've seen is uh, if you go back into i'll say probably somewhere in the 1980s give or take this is this sort of started its journey people understood weights and measures that much for a pound or you know a pound per pound or a cost per pound or a kilo i think now most things we we see we sell by unit so we've we've almost lost touch of the the weighted value of a lot of our produce as well so unless you tell me it's that's going to cost me one pound exactly i'm, I'm questioning you know how much is 49p per kilo? So I think we've come a long way in advancing our food knowledge from a uh, breadth point of view. We've dumbed down, I think, a little bit in terms of our knowledge base and our understanding of it. And we've probably set a massively high expectation of cost and availability, all of which we're now going through a serious challenge process. Globalization, is it going to go away? Absolutely not. Will we potentially have to bring some of our crops closer to home? Uh, yeah, I think we probably will do. Will we need uh, government support in terms of investing in those those aspects to drive that investment for the farmers and de-risk some of that? Yes, I think that, that'll be part of it. Are we in danger at the moment of probably losing some serious skills out of our farming fraternity? Yes, we are, because I think there's a a focus on the here and now and price, and that's really what the retail fight's become about. And at some point, there's going to have to be a very, very brave step where a group of retailers, or hopefully all the retailers, take a step back and go, the lowest cost isn't always the best thing. Actually, it's a balance of value, and that value is cost, quality, and availability. That'll reset and stabilize that global market space, and therefore future-proof our food. I've recently come back from Mexico, um, a, a country which has really geared itself up for export. Um, and you come from South Africa, you know, a country that has really capitalised on this global opportunity. What have you seen over the years since you left South Africa in the development of agricultural businesses, um, infrastructure and that mindset for export in countries like South Africa and Mexico? 
yeah, you know, those countries are not backwards about coming forward and, and the cultures within are very direct and very targeted and very focused. They know what the climate's all about. They know what they can deliver through it. They know where they can get the, the best return for their for their investment um and they're chasing they're following following those paths in 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 that sense and you you can't say that's the wrong thing to do i think it's challenged and developed the marketplace i think competition in our marketplace is not a is not unhealthy it's then down to the responses that we in the uk make in return to that both as retailers as consumers as farmers go in terms of those so so you know is our climate right to to grow blueberries not as good as it's in a number of other countries so that's fine let's bring those in you know but should we be growing significant amounts of green beans and that kind of produce and some cool stuff yes we should but also very aware of the fact that a number of those are declining because you can't get staff now you're into machine harvesting quality is not as good there's a number of needs that that this all creates in terms of automation and those kind of things so we're going to need to choose the the, the areas that are, are core to us and again, I keep coming back down to the retailers because of the size of their market. There's definitely a responsibility that they're aware that they hold in terms of our eating habits, but also our buying habits. At the moment, there's a catch-22 between we're going to recession, we've got to be price competitive, so therefore we're going to use these global markets to our best advantage. And again, commercially, you don't want to stop that. But how do we then come back down to this point of guaranteeing food safety guaranteeing that if these marketplaces dry up or or move towards supplying just home or you know another russia ukraine situation happens and there's a massive knock-on how are we making sure that our little island is is capable of feeding itself there is an increasing desire from consumers to know about the provenance of their fresh produce similarly they want to know about food miles What's the carbon footprint of the importing of a crop? But let's remember, we have an amazing array of food available to us. Without globalisation, we'd not know what an avocado tastes like. But we did once rely on seasonal veg. So why don't more of us eat more locally grown food? Well, there's nothing to stop you getting your hands dirty and reconnecting with the land. Gardeners have been growing their own fruit and veg for decades in plots behind their homes and in local allotments. But could a new generation of green-fingered growers be tempted to cultivate crops spurred on by social media? My name is Gintara Sinkevichute, but I am known as Amber because my name in English means Amber. In England, everybody finds it a lot easier to pronounce Amber than Gintare. (laughs) So that's why Amber's allotment was made on Instagram. If you visit Amber's allotment on Instagram and follow her, you'll be joining 50,000 people signed up to see what Amber has been growing. Well, I've got my allotment for five years now. And first year, I was sharing my uh, harvest with my friends on Facebook, and I, I thought nobody's interested in it. So I thought, oh, my probably my friends, I just fed up of all my pictures of <laughs> weird vegetables, wonky vegetables. And I thought, oh, I'll make an Instagram account and I'll share for people who are actually interested in it. And I just started to share my journey down there. It was like a diary, you know, where I put things wherever I feel and like I want to share with people. Originally from Lithuania, Amber is now living in Sheffield. My grandma, she used to grow all our veggies, never bought any veggies or fruit from the shop. 
and that's how I lived, you know, and when I had my kids, I wanted them to have same childhood as I had with lots of veggies, lots of fruit. I wanted them to be healthy and I thought the best way is to grow veggies together with them. That's that's how I started. That's when I got my allotment. My idea was to show them where all the produce come from. Uh, at the minute, uh, I still harvesting leeks. I have lots of leeks. I have some cabbage. Uh, there's some uh, herbs. Herbs growing all year round. Uh, I just started to harvest my first radishes and dill and lettuce and spinach. So I'm trying to be, you know, to start things early and yeah, to have my own as soon as I can in the springtime. In the summer, we don't have to buy any vegetables. The winter time is obviously a bit harder. But while I grow in the summer, I try to save for the winter. I pickle a lot, so you can save them for the winter. Uh, there's so many ways you can, you know, save it. Freezing, pickling, preserving, fermenting, yeah. I'm still buying veggies from the shop or market or farm shop. But every year I feel I'm getting to that stage where I have to buy less and less. There's lots of simple, you know, veggies you can grow, like onions, they don't require a lot of attention or watering. Same with potatoes. Peas, I love peas. They are quite easy as well. So, sorry about this. Give peas a chance. Visit Amber's allotment on Instagram and you'll see the amazing variety of vegetables she grows. You could reconnect with seasonal veg and save some money too. And it is therapeutic. We all live super hectic lives. It's good to just stop sometimes and smell and feel the earth between our fingers. But as we all know, we can't grow everything in our gardens, nor in our allotments, neither can our farmers. And that's why the import trade is so essential globally. I recently visited Mexico to find out more about a nation that is vital to feeding hundreds of millions of mouths around the world. Mexico is an important player in food production. We represent almost 9% of the GDP and about 14% of formal employment is created in the agricultural sector. 9% of total exports by our country are in the agro-food business. We are the 10th largest producer, 7th largest exporter of food in the world. We were members of GATT many, many years ago, but the real trade opening came with the Free Trade Agreement, the North American Free Trade Agreement. This made us a very competitive sector, and one of the major benefits of the agro-business sector, it allowed us to compete in the big leagues. And therefore, in 1994, when this trade opening began, we exported about $4 billion at that time in general. Today, we are exporting the last figures of 2022. It was more than $50 billion in food exports. Look at what we represent for the United States. 70% of all vegetables it into the U.S. It's from Mexico. More than 50% of fruits 
imported by the U.S. is from Mexico. One crop synonymous with Mexican food and loved globally, whether on tacos or served smashed on sourdough in the ultra-hip cafes in London, is avocado. Okay, so we know it's actually a fruit, but because of its savoury taste, we're classing it as a veg. So please don't email us to complain. Export of avocados from Mexico is huge. In 2021, Mexico avocado exports amounted to a whopping 2.98 billion US dollars. So I visited a packing centre as they were preparing the fruit for shipping around the world. Here's some of the people working in the business. This is the first part of the process. This is, here's where the fruits from last day, from the previous day, it arrived last night at 8 p.m. Straight from the field here, it arrived last night and it stays here for 12 hours. Here the temperature is 55 degrees Fahrenheit. The fruit is clean and the system takes the weight of each avocado, picture of each avocado, and then they start selecting by weight, quality, and all that to different boxes. This is a perfect avocado. It, it complies with the quality number one. And it's manually packed in the back with a lot of employees there. We'll see it on the other side. As you can see, they, they, the package already has the different codes for traceability so that the USDA can follow back and track whatever they need to track. All the information about the farm is right there in that label. And the, and the barcode here is, is so that they can track the person that packed manually that box in particular. Because they get paid for every box that they fill. So they have a weekly, a weekly salary plus the productivity that they get. And they don't hang around. Okay. They control the transit time and they have a goal that for the U.S. they need to be in 12 hours or less from this plant to the border. Japan, 21 days. That's the time. Europe? Europe? Okay. Between 26 and 30 days, Europe. Ocean freight. Ocean freight. And the Middle East is 36 hours by air. And they have fruit 52 weeks year-round. In order to grow the avocados to ship, they've got to be good at it and have the optimum conditions. Weather and climate, as we're all aware, offer huge challenges to farmers as they try to maintain profitable yields year on year. I asked the growers how they produce the best crop that they can. We have a big uh, rain season in this part of the country, you know, it's subtropical. So, for instance, uh, we, uh, the rain season starts like in June when the hurricanes in the Pacific start. So, um, the growers uh, profit this this uh, time of the season to, to get water and save it for the season where it's no water. And, and you use groundwater as well? You pump up water from groundwater? Yes, but we try not to do that. Uh, we, some of, of the growers do that, but we try not to do it so that that water doesn't uh, run out. And, and you mentioned uh, earlier about the Rainforest Alliance and that you're the first producer to have accreditation with that scheme. 
Why is that? Talk us through your sustainability and your biodiversity. The company, fortunately, the company uh, has all the requirements to accomplish the the Rainforest Alliance certificate. You know, they do the best practice in uh, in terms of environmental uh, activities. They save water from the rain. They store it. Uh, they try to use the less uh, pesticides that damage the environment. Uh, they they the company has uh, a bunch of uh, procedures that helps with sustainability. And your colleague mentioned integrated pest management earlier. How do you use that and in what types of ways? Well, they measure everything. So they try to just dosify it in a, in a small doses before just to prevent and that probably sometimes makes you to use less pesticide than normally other growers do. And do you use biological control? Yes, they do also, just to reduce the chemical and the artificial uh, pesticide uh, use. Wherever you are in the world, crop protection is vital in order to ensure that your produce is in the best condition possible before it begins its journey to dining tables all over the globe whether that's a long journey or one of just a few miles. But as bugs evolve and our demand for limited use of pesticide increases, we need new products. And this is where BSF's newest crop protection innovation has a role to play. Axalian is providing farmers with a new way to control an ever-evolving threat to their livelihoods. Here, Sebastian Sorgel tells us more. So it controls a specific subgroup of harmful pests called piercing and sucking pests. So that includes aphids, whiteflies, thrips, leafhoppers, to name but a few. And it works on a variety of crops that includes obviously fruits and vegetables, but also row crops such as soybean, corn, cotton, and even ornamentals. How does Axalion work and how does it achieve the specificity to mm. pests that you described? In a nutshell, what Axelian does is it stops insects quickly from feeding. It works via contact and ingestion. So basically when you spray the compound, the, the target pests, if they get in touch with it, that might affect them already or if they ingest it. And it has a novel mode of action that works uh, in inhibiting the basal function of cordotonal organs. Those cordotonal organs are tiny sensory organs that are present only in insects and crustaceans. And these organs provide insects with senses like hearing, orientation, and balance. Our team now found a way to stop cordotonal activity in the target pests. So that results in target pests becoming uncoordinated, and that basically means they can't feed any longer and eventually fall off the plants. By preventing insects from feeding, you also prevent the insects from spreading viruses or bacteria. We set ourselves the the aim that we exceed industry standards when it comes to environmental and tox profile of our compound. And it works only on the piercing and sucking pests and at the same time, very much in harmony with the environment. Growers will therefore be able to use Exalion in their kind of integrated pest management alongside other crop protection products, not necessarily chemicals, but also biologicals or in combination with beneficials. Exalion is the active ingredient like say ibuprofen, and what are the brand names that farmers will buy when they actually go to buy the product? Axalian Active, that's the ingredient that's doing the work, like your ibuprofen. What farmers at the end of the day will buy, that will be Eficon, 
that will be available in Asia, Europe, South America. And then in select markets in Europe, there will be a second formulation, Durilon. In both cases, active ingredient that's doing the trick, that will be Exalion. So with Exalion Active, uh, BSF is redefining modern pest control with a unique class of chemistry. And we bring control of harmful piercing and sucking pests and especially focusing here on superior whitefly control. And Sebastian, why is Axalion needed for the market? There is um, estimates out there by the Food and Agriculture Organization that per year, 20 to 30% of the global crop produce are lost to pests. And then always bear in mind, insects are masters of reproduction. So if you take the white flies, which we have as, as key target uh, for Axalion, uh, white flies have around about 13 generations per year and each adult can produce up to 300 eggs within 20 days and then you have uh, the ever-present threat of resistance so the pests by a natural occurrence they adapt to the products that are out there so you have to continuously also adapt the chemistries that uh, that we provide to control such pests and on top of this there's also a man-made resistance if uh, growers are overusing specific products. That might be simply because there are no alternatives available or because they are not aware of what kind of spray rotations they should use. Of course, there are also new pests emerging and the driver for this could be climate change. Most pests are invasive, so they simply migrate. They are very mobile. And if it's getting warmer, they just move to other areas where they might just need one, one summer to establish themselves. And suddenly farmers are faced with new pests that they haven't seen before. In the past, chemistries might have been very non-selective, not differentiating between real harmful pests as well as beneficials. These days we try to be way more targeted, but as a consequence, you only have selected pests that you control and suddenly other pests might take over and become more relevant from, from year to year. And then of course, there's also uh, sustainability. We are constantly aiming of course, to develop safer solutions. And that's driven by our own demand as a responsible care company, but of course also by the societal demands. Finally, I think above all, we are aiming to, of course, equip farmers and growers with new innovative tools that allows them to safeguard their crops, their yields, and at the end of the day, their legacies. It's actually the first new mode of action in two decades for the control of piercing and sucking pests. And I actually just had the opportunity to experience that firsthand. So I just returned a week ago from a trip to Brazil, and there I could uh, see Exalian's impressive performance in the field with my own eyes. So for me personally, I've had the unique opportunity to be part of the exciting journey for the last 15 years actually, starting in the lab, moving on to the field and now finally to the market. Breakthroughs like Axalion will no doubt benefit millions of farmers as they do battle against bugs and pests trying to eat their crops. But as our population grows and more people are living in urban centres, is there going to be a shift in the way our vegetables are produced? Innovations and breakthroughs are forever appearing. And so I asked Bradley Magnus what he thought the future held for growing veg for a hungry world. I think we're going to see a multitude of uh, methodologies. There's a lot of hype and there's a lot of noise at the moment about indoor growing. So there's indoor, which is a glasshouse, uh, and that can be a, a reasonably low tech, uh, right the way through to very competently measured automated systems that are, are very quite advanced really 
and then from there you jump into what they call controlled environment agriculture cea which is what we'll call it going forward every aspect is controlled so you're in a dark room potentially um, all the lighting's controlled every aspect watering heating humidity everything's controlled a lot of those systems are in the infancy we sometimes forget that that the first um, CEA profiles only really launched in 2015 so we're a seven or eight year old industry leaf we've seen do very very well micro leaves that kind of stuff but I think as we move into more advanced bigger plants that's where the, those systems start to become a little bit challenged at the moment the outlay cost for a CEA facility is invariably very very high and the whole concept at the moment that makes the ones work that do work are the fact that they're quite low plants they're very densely packed and you're getting a significant return and turnover out of these things obviously with the cost of electricity becomes a bit a bit more of a, a challenge than it was but also to pay off the significant overhead that's that's going in above that do i think automation will play a part um yes it will um but i'm not sure the industry has cracked moving from indoor glass house yet to indoor cea for for anything other really than 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 leaf that said going forward i think there's some very very significant parts that are coming out of the cea industry and i think as the systems develop i think we'll see quite a lot of propagation potentially filter into glasshouse there's also a number of companies that i'm aware of that that you know are starting to work on automated harvesting be that with cobots or, or different systems that we're beginning to hear are, are out in the marketplace in the next five-year block i'd expect the majority of veg to probably stay and move into advanced glass house that will need to be a lot better linked to heat sources and energy sources than i think's been pre-planned in the past and bradley what's driving that is it management of climate is it um local demand so proximity to market or other other things driving the interest in this we've got a significant change in climate at the moment i think those that were forecasting this seven years ago um, really did get it right in terms of the impact it's going to have this idea that spain was the the, the sort of smorgasbord that was where we went to go and get our produce we're now talking oh it's actually it's potentially morocco and then we look and we go well actually morocco is having the same problem so how far down do we go into africa across the to the states the the biggest question is at which point does the retail market jump on the bandwagon and i think once once retailers get on board and go right this is going to be a core way if we're going to we're going to win this race to not only cost but availability i think that's when it'll really gain traction and and the demand will start to get into our farmers who are interested but i think see a lot of it as you know anything that's cea that we talk about this indoor control, almost space tech so it, it, we've got a big jump to make ment mentally that's beginning to really look into the future and and food security as well isn't it brad um how important over the coming decades do you think proximity to the market is going to be i think in the states there's a bigger a bigger demand they've got a high cost to get things all the way across from southwest corner into the majority of the eastern states and that kind of stuff so by moving a plant closer the increase you might have in your cost to produce is is got an offset of your cost to to transport but if if what we're seeing at the moment in our in our weather trends continues i would say that's more likely to be a driver of of locational impact rather than the location itself 
And I suppose that links as well, Brad, into seasonality as well, doesn't it? Climate may affect that supply of seasonal produce out of season. I was surprised at just how much air freight is used to get produce moving across. And we really learned the lesson when, when we had the COVID hit, because when all the flights shut down, things like baby corn went missing or prices shot up. And that was purely because the, the, the passenger flights that carried so much of the stuff underneath the, under the passages and the holds stopped functioning. So, so now you have to go to specialised air freight and that's more expensive. I've recently come back from Mexico, um, a, a country which has really geared itself up for export. Um, yeah. And you come from South Africa, you know, a country that has really capitalised on this global opportunity. What have you seen over the years since you left South Africa in the development of that mindset for export? There's a number of South African companies that have now got bases set up here. So so they're reaching out across, they're investing in their space with, where, where they're trying to sell their, their produce. So those countries are not backwards about coming forwards and, and the cultures within are very direct and very targeted and very focused. You know, those countries are, are geared to grow uh, and no, no harm in that. And Brad, when you overlay... Um environmental and social consciousness on this as well how do we start to factor in and when might we see it i know it's being talked about but real interest in water um, for where that crop is grown the impact on indigenous foods and indigenous people the emissions from a production system although i think the global supply chain is talking about it we're not actually seeing much of an impact yet. When do you think that will start to come in in earnest and impact how and what and the cost of supply? When you're in a massive recession and we've got fuel prices and gas prices and we're hearing about these big companies making billions whilst people are struggling to pay heating bills or or feed their families, I think all of the niceties, all the areas that we should be looking at to look after the future of our planet become a lot less important. I think that's, that's Unfortunately, the, the, the tough choice that someone, someone's going to have to, and the government going to have to step up and take responsibility for. We've tried to take a snapshot of the supply trade of vegetables, but we've demonstrated the way in which we have choices. We can grow our own or choose from the enormous cornucopia available to us when we shop. Whether that choice will remain in the coming decades as we face an ever uncertain future with a volatile climate, equally volatile energy market, and growing geopolitical upheaval is unsure, but the innovators and scientists are going to be working hard to ensure we have abundant food for our tables. And where there is a shortage, they'll be trying to tackle the root cause of hunger. Thank you for listening to The Science Behind Your Salad from BASF and Fresh Air. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Next episode, we'll be wading through the murky topic of food waste and finding ways to reduce the amount we throw away. Thank you for listening.